Thank you for joining us today at River City Church, a church living in love. If you have a prayer need, would like to speak to a pastor, or have questions about today's message, please email us at info at rivercitysmyrna.com. For more information or to give to the ministries of River City Church, please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. God. Good morning, River City. Welcome to Family Sunday. It's so great to see everybody here. Um, here at River City, we start out um, just not only welcoming you all, but we read a psalm from the lectionary. Um, this psalm this week, definitely, I'm sure y'all have heard kind of the Christian cliche, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. But... <laughs> But as I was reading through it and praying through it, I thought about while Psalms 37, people often go to it for encouragement, I thought of it this week too as a set of instructions about what we need to do as we seek the Lord during these times of trouble. Um, and the title is, of course, of David, but it is. it also says in the ESV version that it is a commitment that God would not forsake the saints. So just keep that in mind as you read and listen um, this Sunday. And it says, fret not yourselves because of evil doors. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evil doers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 39. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in them. 
as we pray. Father God, we thank you for this Sunday. Thank you for an opportunity to celebrate family. Thank you that we can gather together. We pray for our sisters and brother across the world who are gathering today, those in public and those in secrets. We pray, Father God, for those who are still questioning who you are, who are seeking your face, who feel the times of trouble. They have heard about Jesus. They've heard about the Lord and are not sure how they can find justice in you, Father God. They are not sure where their righteousness comes from and they may be moving towards works. They may be looking for miracles. They may be looking for the difference between right and wrong. We pray for all those questions, Father God, and we embrace them. And we know that you can not only carry them, but you can answer them. We pray, Father God, for those who are seeking you because of unhappiness, times of trouble, as well as family. God, we thank you for everyone here, here at River City. We thank you for Family Sunday. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate our family here, but also turn our hearts towards our family in the church. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so isn't it the gift of the table that we are filled up to overflow that we are fed to go out. And what I love about getting to do prayers of the people right after the table is it turns our hearts outward, which is the point. It is the goal, right? And so if you will stand back up again, even as a physical way to participate in the prayers of the people, as I lead you through, I want you guys to take... We're going to take about five seconds, five to ten. And I want you to think what, have, what has been the burden on your heart this week? What has been the thing that you've been carrying? Has it been a burden for yourself? But even further, has it been a burden for a family member, for a friend, for someone in this community that you have been privileged to bear their burdens? Have you been burdened by something in Smyrna, in Cobb County, in Georgia, in our nation, in our world? And I want you to sit in the space of five to 10 seconds and rejoice in the fact that you have been called to be a co-laborer with Christ, which means we have the great honor of sharing the burdens and the brokenness of the world that we might be light that we might bring healing, that we might bring hope. So let's not miss the invitation to be involved in this right now, because this is equally important. This is the point of receiving. It is to go, it is to pour out. So if you'll take about five to 10 seconds. As we pray, I will let you know when it is your opportunity to voice these requests before God. God, we turn our faces towards you. We lift up our eyes to the hills from where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord. Let us pray for the church and for the world. Grant almighty God that all who confess your name may be united in your truth Live together in your love and reveal your glory in the world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. 
Guide the people of this land and of all the nation in the ways of justice and peace that we may honor one another and serve the common good. If you have a prayer for this land or for the world, if you'll speak that out. Give us all a reverence for the earth as your own creation that we may use its resources rightly in the service of others and to your honor and glory. Bless all whose lives are closely linked with ours and grant that we may serve Christ in them and love one another as he loves us. Comfort and heal all those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Give them courage and hope in their troubles and bring them the joy of your salvation. If you will take some time to speak out now, requests you might have for loved ones or people you know that need a touch from God. God, we lean into you as the author and creator of life. Thank you for your goodness of being present with us, for being with us in our mess and being with us in our brokenness, that at the very least, we are not alone. That though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, we will not give up hope for our God reigns. We thank you for this. Let our faith rise up in community and let us carry that faith and hope outward to our friends, to loved ones, to this city, and to all who we come in contact with. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What I have to share this morning is, is pretty simple. It is maybe a little controversial, but it, it shouldn't be. It's a, it's a long story and we're not gonna get into it at all, but unfortunately, tragically, a lot of the churches that have shaped the Christianity that you and I know, somewhere along the way, because of infighting in Christian communities, the focus shifted away from Jesus and away from his teaching to our beliefs about how God saves us and how we should live in the world. And for generations now, many of us have been shaped by ways of being Christian that aren't really rooted in the life and teaching of Jesus. We believe in Jesus and we teach that people should have a relationship to Jesus, but our focus really isn't on the way of life that he modeled or the teaching that he gave us. We're much, we're much more comfortable talking about the presence of Jesus in our lives and the power of Jesus in our lives than we are talking about the, the direction that Jesus gives us. And one of the gifts of using the lectionary, so not all church traditions use a lectionary, in the churches that I grew up in and that I was shaped in, the preacher always took his text or her text from their own kind of devotional life. So whatever God had spoken to them that week, that was the text that they went to. But in, in many church traditions, in the older church traditions, there's a use of something called a lectionary, which kind of lays out for you over a three-year cycle texts for every week. And so in, in a lectionary, you may or may not know, you'll have an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a psalm, and then a reading from the gospel. And the reading from the gospel is always last and given prominence. So if you go to a high church service, Orthodox, Catholic, or Anglo-Catholic, 
then when it comes time for the reading of the gospel, they'll actually process in with a gigantic gospel text, a Bible, and hold it up before the, and stand in the middle of the sanctuary and read it, and the congregation standing for the reading of the gospel, which is a liturgical way of emphasizing that this is central, that all, all that we hear, all of this is scripture, all of this is the word of God, but these are the words of Jesus. And that these words tell us how to hear the rest of the words, right? It's, it's Jesus' teaching that tells us how to hear the teaching of Moses or the teaching of Paul or John or James. So what I want to do this morning is focus on the gospel text for the day, which comes from Luke chapter 6 and is a part of what's called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, we're all familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew's version. Blessed are the meek, all of the Beatitudes, right, which come from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, but Luke has a similar version of the sermon that's given in, on a plane, and it's called the Sermon on the Plain, and I want to start there in Luke 6. We're going to peak, pick up in verse 26. This is right in the middle of the sermon. We're not going to try to sketch all of it, but just right in the middle of the sermon, we're going to catch Jesus kind of mid-sentence. Verse 26. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. So right, right away, I'm going to interrupt myself to say this. The, there's a kind of public perception about Jesus, a kind of public myth that Jesus was a simple teacher who was always gentle and kind. And that's, at best, half the story. The way I say it to my students is, if you were a prostitute, some, some kind of sex worker, or a child, Jesus was always incredibly generous with you. Other than that, you have no idea what you're going to get from Jesus. <laughs> right? So if you're children or sex workers in here, then you're safe. <laughs> Everybody else, you're in for a serious challenge. Because Jesus is often saying the strangest and, and sometimes, sometimes harshest things. I mean, he often calls people fools and idiots. He often rebukes people for being stubborn. And in this case, he says, woe to you if everybody likes you. Now, some of you can rest easy. Not everybody likes you. <laughs> woe to you. If everybody speaks well of you, because that's what they did with the false prophets. So I think we, we need to come to terms with the fact that to follow Jesus and to follow his teachings is necessarily to be people who have enemies. You can't live the way of Jesus without having enemies. There's no way to fulfill the gospel. There's no way to bear witness to the kingdom. There's no way to live the spirit-filled life without creating pushback from people who don't want to see you living the kind of life you're living. Now, the key is what kind of enemies you're creating and why. Peter will put it this way. Don't complain if people don't like you because of the way you're acting. That's in no way righteous. If you're being persecuted for Jesus' sake, that's sacred. If you're being persecuted because you're hateful and smart aleck, that's on you, right? And there's, there's some people, I think, they've confused being prophetic with just being a jerk, right? 
just because you're mean doesn't mean you're prophetic. Like, that's not a sign of the Spirit of God on you. Like, you, you need to get over yourself. But if you are prophetic, if you are living the kind of life that God wants you to live in the midst of this world, you will create enemies. You will create people who do not want you doing that. And then, as soon as he said that, as soon as Jesus has said, woe to you if everyone speaks well of you, because that's what false prophets do, he immediately says, but I say to you, listen, love your enemies. So, one, you can't be a Christian without having enemies. Two, you can't be a Christian without loving those enemies. In fact, this is what separates the faithful from the unfaithful. This is what separates those who are truly following Christ from the rest of us who are only hoping to follow Christ. And that is what we do with the enemies we've made through living prophetically. We're going to live prophetically. We're going to live in the Spirit. We're going to follow Christ. And that's going to generate pushback. That's going to generate conflict. And then our responsibility is to respond to that conflict in love and to love our enemies. The enemies that we made by following Jesus. The enemies that, that came about because we were trying to, to fulfill the gospel. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. Think about what Jesus is saying here. I mean, we've heard this, but listen to what he's saying. Right? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then, as if that's not difficult enough, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. And he returns to that, that same insistence. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Expecting nothing in return. And here we come to the heart of Jesus' teaching about the way of the Christian life. You have to not only make enemies by the way you're living prophetically and love the enemies that you've made, but you have to live without expecting anything from them. That the life that Christ calls us to is a life that is all gift. It's all the life of God coming through us for them. It's not a life of bargain or exchange. We don't love our enemies so that they in return can bless us. We don't love our enemies so that they in return can love us. We love our enemies, full stop. If they never respond in kind, we keep loving them. And we keep loving them even to the point of death. As we, we said already today, Jesus on the cross as he's dying is praying, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Even to death, we are giving and we have to learn to live from a place where we're not needing anything from anybody. Now, this, this is so hard for Christians. Let me give you a kind of tried example, but it makes the point. If, if you put together a car wash for the local community, 
But your purpose really is you want to get your Sunday morning attendance up. That's not really loving your enemies, right? That's just good salesmanship, right? That's just a way to increase attendance. The Christian life can't have those kind of ulterior motives at play. It can't have this secret intention of, I'm going to do something good for you in hopes of creating a response that's good for me. We do good in the world expecting nothing in return. We don't do what we do so that we can get a response. We do what we do, leaving the response to God. If nothing ever comes, so be it. We're going to do what God requires us to do. We have to live from a place where we're not needy. Now, how are we going to live this, Jesus? Because we're human beings, and all of us are needy. All of us have to have responses from other people. And yet the life Jesus is calling us to is a divine life. Jesus is God living the human life. He lives the human life divinely. He lives it as God. And then he calls us to do the same. Now, it's, it's in some ways easy for us to trust that Jesus lived this life for us because we couldn't live it. That's easy to hear in some ways. But it's harder to hear that now he calls us to live that same life with him. But the process of what we call discipleship is the process of learning to live that life with him. Learning to live this life that we've been given in the life of, of God. L learn to live this human life divinely, just as he did. And that means even though we're needy people, even though we are broken people, the life of God in us is pushing us to the place where we live without need, where we give without expecting anything in return. And what marks a sign of maturity in a Christian's life is that you're able to give without those ulterior motives, without those strings attached, without hoping to get something in return. So Jesus says, expecting nothing in return, your reward will be great from God, not from those people. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Then notice this line, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Then we're told, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. There are two problems that face us, at least two problems that face us, when we hear a teaching like this, when we hear Jesus telling us to love our enemies. The first problem is, how do we love those who are taking advantage of us? How does a woman who's been abused by her husband pray for the one who's abusing her? And one of the tragedies of Christian practice has been we've often applied the teaching of Jesus to the weak rather than the strong. So in many cases, there have been women who are being abused who come looking for help, and the response is, well, Jesus says, you just have to turn the other cheek. That's not what's being said here. Jesus is not encouraging the weak to endure more abuse. These are words that are describing the kind of life that happens when you let God take shape in your life. These are words for the strong, not words for the weak. This is not a command for those who are being taken advantage of to just deal with it. Right? And this, this happens, I remember I was 
years ago between jobs. I won't get into that story. And I took a job cleaning a, a, a kind of large building with a crew of people. And it was, a, I don't want to say the denomination, but it was a religious headquarters. And the foreman on the job one night came into us and said, listen, we watched the video from the last time you guys had cleaned. And one of the members on my team apparently had sat down in one of the offices. And he let us have it about how we needed to do this professionally. And so we took that, responded. Then he let us know the next week we came back in that they were going to have to cut our pay. And at this point, he appeals to, but hey, you guys aren't doing this for money anyway. You're doing this because you love the Lord. And I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or some other spirit in me. <laughs> but we didn't work in that building anymore after that night. But what I said to him in some, I'll say it to you a little more politely than I said it to him, is that you don't get to say when you don't like the way we're performing that we needed to be professional. And then when you don't want to pay us, appeal to our devotion to Jesus. You don't get to play both sides of that fence, right? If you want to be like Jesus, then be merciful to us when my employee isn't doing what you want him to do. And be merciful to us and pay us even though you don't have it to give. Or be professional, but you can't do both. You can't take advantage of us when you want us to act like we are working for a business and then tell us that we should accept it because we're following Jesus. But we do that with people sometimes in church, especially people who are weak. And we put them in a position, we appeal to Jesus' teaching, and the only time we appeal to Jesus' teaching is when it's a case of someone who's under abuse or suffering, and we tell them to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. But what we need to hear is these are words to those of us who are in positions of strength. Just recently I was speaking at a church, and afterwards a woman came up to me, and she, in tears, she shared with me this story about how God has been recently nudging her and pressing her to forgive someone who wronged her 40 years ago. And she said, it doesn't, she said, first, I'm surprised because I thought I'd already forgiven this person and forgotten about it. She said, secondly, I don't really even mind being asked to forgive. But the problem I'm having is God is not just nudging me to forgive this man. God keeps saying to me that he wants me to forgive this man because this man is precious to him. And she said, what's upsetting me and what I don't know how to deal with is how this man can be precious to God, given what he's done to me. But what, what strikes me about that story is God is asking that of her 40 years after it happened, not a few days after it happened. So when we hear these words, and I just want to make sure this is clear, I want you to hear what I'm saying. When you, when you hear Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, if you're in the middle of being taken advantage of by someone, God's going to give you time to heal, to gather strength, to find your footing, let his life take shape in you, and there will come a time in which you will have to forgive. You will have to turn the other cheek. You will have to speak blessing over those who've cursed you, but not in the heat of that moment. God is, is not going to take advantage of you in that way. The Old Testament reading for today is the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph is this, this privileged, beloved son. His brothers hate him. They sell him into slavery. He goes into slavery, suffers some more, is betrayed in a few ways, but in, eventually rises to power just about, a time, just about the time that the famine comes. His brothers show up in his court, 
And we, the Old Testament reading for the day shows the moment where he finally wants to reveal himself to them. And what he does is he shows himself to them and he says, I'm your brother Joseph. And the text says, and they are too afraid to respond. They're panicking because they realize this is the man we sold into slavery. And now he is the second in authority, Pharaoh and Joseph. And he's the one who has the food. This can't go well. But it does go well because Joseph forgives them and speaks blessing over them, but they're still afraid to respond. And there's this line in the text where Joseph says to them, come closer to me. And he invites them near to him. And then finally they respond in kind. And, and you know the rest of the story. But again, notice, Joseph has all of these years of God's work in his life before the moment comes to speak blessing over the brothers that had sold him into slavery. So I want you to hear me very clearly. If you right now are in a moment in which you are being abused, someone's striking you on the cheek, or someone's taking advantage of you, right now you need to be protected. You need the people of God to gather around you and get you safely away from that. And over time, as God's life is at work in you, you will find that you are being nudged and pulled toward a place of forgiving those people. But you don't, you don't have to rush. God's in no hurry. And we're in no hurry. So I want to make sure that, that that's clear. Let me give you one more example, just, just so it's clear. It's probably too clear. I'll probably make it less clear by giving you this example. But this is a fascinating story of David after he's fleeing from Saul. And he and his men sneak up on Saul and, and Saul's encampment. And Saul and Abner, his, his captain, and all of Saul's soldiers are asleep. And David and his men sneak into the camp and they take Saul's javelin, his spear, and then go out of the camp, go across the ravine, and go up on the, the ledge and yell down and wake up the Saul and his enemies, not Saul and his, his soldiers. And David says, you know, why are you still pursuing me? I could have killed you just now. And he shows Saul the spear. And then he says, send one of your servants over to get it, and I'll return it to you. And what's striking to me about that story is, remember, when David was playing the harp for Saul in the palace, that spear is the one that Saul kept throwing at David to try to kill him. So, I mean, David, this, think about this. David is in the palace doing what he can to care for Saul, playing the harp, trying to drive away these evil spirits, and then Saul randomly, violently, tries to kill him for it. Right? And it, it is... It, always going to be true that there are people in our lives that we're trying to care for who are actually trying to hurt us. Right? We're all going to have a Saul in our lives. We're also all going to be Saul to somebody else. You realize you're praying this morning about somebody that's a thorn in your flesh, and somebody in some other church is praying about you. <laughs> or maybe this church, I don't know. Somebody somewhere is praying about you and, and me. But David, here's this javelin that's been thrown at David over and over again. He sneaks into the camp, he takes it, and then he gives it back. And this seemed to me, seems to me to be exactly the kind of thing Jesus is calling us to do, to keep giving back to people the very weapons they can use against us. But notice, David does it with some distance. He says, send your servant over here and I'll give it back to you. Right? So there's wisdom in how we love our enemies. There's wisdom in how we forgive. God is not asking us to do something foolish and rash that's going to keep us in a, in a kind of cycle of harm. But he is asking us to let his life work in us to the point that we can love those who've wronged us. 
Now, the other misreading is the one I really want to press this morning. I, I, I wanted to make sure to be clear about that. But this, this is really what I want to share with you. There's another part of us, and I think this is especially true for those of us who are raised in Christianities in the Bible Belt, in the midst of all these culture wars that have been raging for the last 20 or 30 years. And that is the idea that we can't be good to people who are sinning because somehow that will condone their sin. You know, the big controversy a few years ago was whether or not you should bake a cake for a gay wedding. And the, and the, the conversation around that was, but if you do something like that, if you do some kind of service for someone who's in a relationship you don't approve of, aren't you in some way condoning it, affirming it? That is undercutting, that kind of mentality is undercutting our Christian witness. And it's a place where our politics have overtaken our faith. And our political allegiances, whether we're left or right or center or off the spectrum. Some of you, I think, are off the spectrum. <laughs> but our politics are starting, and because of the culture war and the kind of chaos that we're all experiencing, what's happening is our politics are reshaping the way we live our Christian life. And so we're, we're not so much Christian as we are a left-leaning Christian or a right-leaning Christian. And as long as that's happening, our Christian witness is going to be muted. And we're really just echoing talking points from one or the other political center. And until the church changes that, there's no way for God to bring healing to all of the disruption that's happening in our culture. We're just adding to it. And every time we make a decision to refuse to participate in someone else's sin by being kind to them, we betray the work of God in our own lives. Jesus says, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Who am I to say I won't do something good for someone who's sinning when God has been good to me? You don't think you're wicked? And you're here? God woke you up this morning. You're breathing. Your heart is beating. Or it was until a couple minutes ago when I said this. <laughs> God is sustaining you. God is enriching your life with all kinds of good things. And he knows you. God is kind to the wicked. How would we dare not to be? How could we possibly get to the place, and we have, but how could we possibly get to the place that we think we can decide whether or not to be kind to someone? As if that is our right. The whole gospel is while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We are the enemies of God, and he seeks us out. Right? He dies for the ungodly. I mean, the heart of the gospel is that when you and I were totally turned away from God, seeking our own way, bringing destruction to everyone around us, God sought us out and claimed us. This is the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? The prodigal, you remember, takes his inheritance. He goes away to the far country and wastes it. We don't know how he wasted it, by the way. The elder son is the one who comes up with the idea that he wasted it on prostitutes. 
because that's what the elder son wanted to do and was afraid to do. <laughs> so when the, the prodigal comes home, when the prodigal comes home, the father throws a party. Here's the ring. Put shoes on his feet. Here's the, here's the cloak. Kill the fatted calf. Let's throw a party. And you know what the neighbors were saying? That's how this kid got in trouble in the first place. If you just lavish people who make bad decisions with good things, they'll just become worse and worse and worse. I mean, his, this father obviously spoiled this boy. That's why he went into the far country in the first place. And now he's back having humiliated everyone in the family and defamed the family tradition and wasted the family fortune. And the thing the father wants to do is take the little bit of wealth they have left and spend it on this boy again. That's God. No, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But that's God. That is the foolishness of the gospel that Paul tells us about. That God, while we are sinners, while we are his enemies, while we are ungodly, lavishes us with good things. There's a, there's a moment where Paul and Barnabas are performing, a, a, they heal a, a man in the city, and, and everyone in the city rushes out and starts to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because they think they're Greek gods come in the flesh. And Paul and Barnabas say, no, 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 that's not what's going on at all. And Paul says, listen, God has always been good to you. God has always been showing his signs to you by giving you food to eat and pleasure for your heart. These are pagan, Gentile, idol-worshiping people. I mean, they see a miracle and they want to offer thanks to Zeus. And what Paul says is, you Zeus worshiping pagans, God has filled your hearts with pleasure. God is good to the wicked. He's good to the ungrateful. And if he hadn't been, we wouldn't be here. If it, it weren't for the generosity of God to those who were against him, you and I wouldn't be in this room right now. We are here because our God is good to those who aren't good to him or good to others. Because it is love that transforms the wicked. Like the, There's so much that I, that I want to say. One is, Thomas Merton um, said it this way, you can't prove your love for God by hating those who seem to be God's enemies. You can't prove your love for God by hating those who seem to be God's enemies. If you're going to prove your love for God, you have to love like God loves. And God loves his enemies. That's the gospel. But you also have to realize that by loving your enemies, you're actually bringing God's life to bear on them. You remember the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery? You know, she's having this affair, and these Pharisees catch her. Makes me think they had kind of been watching for a while, and they finally decided to act on it. And they catch her, and they bring her before Jesus, and they say, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Now, she's broken the law. She's committed sin. And what they want him to do, of course, is pronounce judgment on her. They, they want to stone her. And Jesus says instead, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. You remember the story. They all go away. Then Jesus says, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. He said, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. Here's the thing. If they had stoned this woman, they would have put an end to the adultery, but they would have killed her. 
Right? They would have shown that they stand against adultery, that they, they're not going to tolerate adultery. I mean, yeah, they are, but in this case, they're going to act like they're not. They're not going to toler- tolerate adultery, but they just end her. So the sin is witnessed against, but it's unchanged. What Jesus does is forgive her and empower her to leave the sin behind so that he's saving her and in that way killing the sin. So you can have your choice. You can kill the person because you hate the sin, or you can kill the sin because you love the person. You have a choice. You can kill the person because you hate the sin, or you can kill the sin because you love the person. And God is doing the second. That's why you and I are here. He loves us and hates the sin. That He's going to destroy the sin in our lives because he loves us. He doesn't hate sin so much that he's willing to destroy us in order to show how much he hates sin. And just to put it as bluntly as I can, if you're more angered by other people's sin than you are moved by compassion for their suffering, the life of God is not in you. If I'm more upset about something I see going wrong than I am brokenhearted about the fact that those people are enslaved by what's going wrong, the life of God is not in me. Because the life of God in us recognizes that where there is sin, there is destruction, and there are people being destroyed. And we have to care more about those people than we do about what's going wrong. Right? I, I haven't seen your Facebook post, but I've seen Facebook posts. And it's, it's stunning how often people are more upset about the wrong than they are the ones who are being wronged. They're more concerned about the injustice in the abstract than they are the lives of the people who are suffering the injustice. And that, that is not a sign of the Spirit of God in us. So, Jesus, come to verse 46. It was good knowing you, Josh. I'll, I'll never see you again. We're not even going to go to lunch after this. We're just going to get right in the car. And Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words, and acts on them. In other words, if you love your enemies like I've told you to do, then you're like a man building a house who digs deeply and lays the foundation on rock. And when the flood arises, the river bursts against the house but cannot shake it because it has been well built. But the one who hears and does not act, the one who does not love his enemies, as I've called you to love them, is like someone who builds a house on the ground without a foundation at all. When the river bursts against it, immediately it falls, and great is the ruin of that house. So for Jesus, loving your enemies is the test case of whether or not you're following his teaching. It's the difference between building on a foundation and building on sand. And then we open up on a story. So no sooner has Jesus done this than said this than he does this. Chapter 7, verse 1. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. A centurion there had a slave whom he valued highly and who was ill and close to death. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him asking him to come and heal his slave. When they came to Jesus... They appealed to him earnestly, saying, He is worthy of having you do this for him, for he loves our people, and it is he who built our synagogue for us. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy 
to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but only speak the word and let my servant be healed. For I also am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. This is a striking story in all kinds of ways. I mean, Jesus has just given this teaching about loving your enemies, and the very next thing that happens is he heals the slave of a Gentile. So here's a Jew, a Jesus, a Jewish man, who uh, has grown up in a world that is under Roman oppression. And he's grown all he's known all of his life is the Roman-occupied territories. And right after his teaching about loving your enemies, it's a Gentile that comes to him with a need. And there are two ways to hear this story. If you, if you study the, the way this story has been interpreted, there are two ways to hear it. One of them is that this Gentile is actually a good man who loves God and has invested deeply in the life of these people around him, built their synagogue, and so on. And the man has this genuine compassion for this servant in his house. And in that case, it's not that shocking at first that Jesus would heal him. But think about this for a moment. This is a centurion, a Roman centurion, who has a slave, a Jewish slave, who's a boy, a young boy. We don't know how old, but probably a teenage or preteen boy. And when it says that he has compassion for this boy, it actually says that he's useful. What's, what's happening here is it's not as if there's a story similar to this in John where a man has a son that he's asked Jesus to heal. But this is not a case of a father and a son. This is a case of a, of a soldier and a slave. And we know that God is not going to affirm slavery. So if I'd been there, this is what I would have done. Uh, Jesus, listen, I think it's great that you're going to heal this Gentile, that you're going to do something good for this Gentile. That's pretty impressive. But if you heal this Gentile's slave, then you're essentially affirming slavery. You're essentially condoning the fact that he owns this boy. And this boy is a Jew. I mean, this, this boy is of your own. You, you can't do that. You can't heal this man's slave. Because, Jesus, we don't really know this man. We don't know what this slave means to him. We don't know why this slave is so valuable to him. If you know anything about Roman culture and Roman culture in the ancient world, you know that these slaves were often used not just for work around the house, but relationally. It is very possible that this man is talking about a boy he's using. Jesus, you can't heal someone like that. But Jesus doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't stop to say, would you fill out this questionnaire so that I can decide whether or not you're the kind of person that I want to act on behalf of, right? You know, if you're, if you're applying for a grant or some kind of gift, often you have to fill out a profile. Right? Are, are you the kind of family we want to bless with this gift? 
But Jesus never does that. He doesn't pass out questionnaires. When he's at the wedding in Cana and they tell him about the wine, Jesus doesn't say, hmm, I'm afraid if I turn this water to wine, some of these people might drink too much. And then if they drink too much and they get in their car on their way home, who knows what will happen? I mean, it was all grape juice, we know, but still. The... <laughs> I mean, Jesus isn't calculating that. When he turns the fish and loaves into a meal for 5,000 plus people, he doesn't say to the disciples, now listen, some of these people you, you just can't trust. Right? They're going to try to take advantage of you, and they're going to hide the food and then come back and ask for more. So you, you double check and make sure they don't get more than one plate. He just is good to people. He's not calculating. And he's not standing in front of these Jewish elders talking about this centurion saying, you know what, I, don't, I just don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm against slavery, and I, I really don't know what he's doing in the house with that. I just, I just can't go there. He just heals the boy. He just turns the water to wine. He just takes the loaves and the fish, and he makes a meal for 5,000 people. Because Jesus trusts that being kind to people is never going to work against God's redemption in their life. Being good to someone will never, under any circumstances, will never interfere with God's redemptive work in their life. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to calculate. You don't have to decide, if I say this kind thing to this person who's living a way I don't think they should live, will they somehow think that I affirm the way they're living? Stop calculating. Be kind. Be generous. God is good to the wicked. And we're wrong most of the time when we think other people are wicked anyway. We're misjudging them. But even if they are, even if someone is sinning, you can be kind to them. Because it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Jesus forgives the woman, and that's what frees her from adultery. And so what we have to ask ourselves is, do I care more about the transformation of this person or the affirmation of my sense of right and wrong? Do I just want to be right about what's right and wrong, or do I want to see God break in and change people's lives? That's the choice we're all facing. And what we need is to come to a place where we can boldly be good to people. We don't have to be afraid. God's not going to leave that slave alone. God is with that slave. God is going to undermine that slavery. God is going to free that slave. We can trust that I can be kind to this centurion who has a slave he shouldn't have because that is going to lead to repentance for this centurion and to freedom for this slave. We've got to trust the bigger work of God. All I can do is be kind to the person who's in front of me. And I don't have to constantly be hedging my bets. I don't have to constantly be making sure that no one misunderstands what my kindness means. Just lavish people with love. Right? This is what happens, and I'm almost done. This is what happens when the woman comes in and starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Another version where she breaks the alabaster box. And you remember what the Pharisee says? If Jesus knew who this was, he wouldn't let her do this. You hear how calculating that is? Right? If he really understood what this means, it looks like he's affirming prostitution. Jesus didn't care. There's that stunning line in Philippians where it says, 
He made himself of no reputation. Some of us are involved in kinds of Christianity where it's all about having a reputation. Do you want to be known for being a good, upstanding, moral person, or do you want to be known as a child of God? Jesus, you're talking to that woman at the well. You shouldn't be doing that. I mean, the disciples come back, and they see he's talking to the woman at the well, and they're panicking. Jesus, this is really bad optics. We don't want this. And Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. This woman's going to bring the whole city to us. Jesus doesn't care about optics. He's not worried about his reputation. He's not calculating whether or not he can be kind to someone. St. Isaac the Syrian, the Orthodox church father, says this, shame the lover of righteousness by your compassion to the unrighteous, and you will be like God. Shame the lover of righteousness by your compassion to the unrighteous, and you will be like God. That will shake Smyrna and Atlanta. In a culture where everything is calculated and everyone's waiting and sitting on every word to see and every Facebook post and every tweet to see what you really believe about X, Y, and Z, when we start to love others as God has loved us, we will bring the power of the kingdom to bear. We will bring the power of the kingdom to bear and bear witness to the fact that we are sons and daughters of God. Amen? All right, I'm done. Go ahead. Thank you again for joining us today, and please visit our website at rivercitysmyrna.com.